Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Hypocrisy Hurts. Okay, so last week we saw Peter and John, and man, did they ever make a bold defense for Christ in front of the highest court of the land, the Sanhedrin. And so because the Sanhedrin could find no fault in the apostles, because they had not committed a crime, I mean, the only crime that they committed was they healed a guy in the name of Jesus. And if you call that a crime, there's a problem in your heart. And so they, they knew, this, they didn't commit any crime, they didn't do anything wrong, so we have to release them. So they brought him back in the courtroom and they said, never again speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, well, sorry, <laughs> we have to obey God over man. And so we are gonna continue to talk about Jesus. And they threatened them and they let him go. And so that was a very negative experience. How many of you guys have negative experiences in your life, right? Don't let it shake you up. God is on his throne. Keep your eyes on God, not on man. And so they went to their friends, their Christian friends, and they got into this powerful prayer. We studied that last week. If you missed last week, you missed a message on prayer that can really help you. And so you go to the, um, if you have the capability and, and, and you wanna do this, you can go to your um, app, um, the app for podcasts, and then type in Calvary Port St. Lucie. You can download any of these messages and listen to them when you go to work or or uh, when you're vacuuming or dusting the house or whatever. And so I encourage you, because last week was very practical on prayer and it was very helpful in my own life and I know it will be helpful in your life as well. So at the end of that powerful prayer, the place where they were was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Lots of confusion about this within the church. It doesn't mean like liquid, you're filled up and then oh no, the Holy Spirit is leaking out of me and so I need more Holy Spirit. No, no, no. the word filled is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor, what it means is to be influenced and controlled by the Spirit. You say, where do you get that from, Pastor? From God's Word. Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says, do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled, in the Greek, continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christians in Ephesus, church family in Ephesus, don't allow yourself to come under the influence and control of alcohol. That's debauchery, that's excessive indulgence, and quite frankly, that's stupid. <laughs> Instead of coming under the influence of alcohol, come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And, and by the way, I, you know, I, I personally, I choose not to drink. You know, um, if you guys saw me at ABC Liquor with a, you know, a bottle of rum in my, in my cart, you probably would lose respect for me as your pastor. Okay, so I choose not to drink. But it says in the Bible that the sin is getting drunk. Don't get drunk with wine. That's excessive indulgence. Be filled with the Spirit. And so what I know is that being under the influence of the Holy Spirit is a million times better than being under the influence of alcohol without the hangover. Amen. And if that troubles you and bothers you in your heart, maybe it's a, a sin that you need to repent of and get right with God. And so these Christians 
were once again filled with the Holy Spirit and check out the results. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So let me just pause you real quick. What are we doing? What we're doing is exegeting the text. In verse 31, they were filled with the Spirit. So what's the result of them being filled with the Spirit? Well, it says right here, they were of one heart and soul in verse 32. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles, notice, notice this, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as um, were owners of lands and houses sold them, and look, look at this, they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so the filling of the Spirit in the lives of these Christians produced the following. It produced the wonderful Spirit-filled life. Now there's a lot more about the Spirit-filled life that would take weeks and days and months to talk about. This is just what this portion of the Scripture says. And so as a result of being influenced, controlled by the Spirit of God, there was unity there was testimony, and there was generosity. Okay, so everybody look at verse 32 again. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. That means that these early Christians had a kindred spirit, a connection spiritually with one another. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was in their midst. And I tell you, when I come to these weekend services, you know what I, I, I sense? I sense a kindred spirit with you guys in this room. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in this room. When I talk to many of you after the service, even though I don't know you very well, I sense a kindred spirit with you. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives inside of you. And it's a beautiful connection. When I get together with my uh, Calvary group and we get together as guys, there's a kindred spirit going on in my living room. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in our midst. Unity is part of the spirit-filled life and it's very important. Psalm 133, the psalmist said, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And you gotta picture this in your mind. But the psalmist continues and says, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, I don't have a beard, so you have to picture somebody else, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, I can't wait, I'm gonna see it in a couple months here, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Those who are full of the Spirit have a kindred spirit with others who are full of the Spirit. But ladies and gentlemen, those who walk in the flesh, those who gossip, those who backbite, those who get drunk, those who use social media to attack others, they will never have unity with Spirit-filled believers. Secondly, the filling of the Spirit produced testimony. Look at verse 33. 
And remember in verse 31, they're filled with the Spirit again, and now we're looking at the results. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. Everybody say, giving their testimony. Go ahead. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so Jesus told them just a few months earlier, the resurrected Christ before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He said, guys, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. And that's exactly what happened here three months earlier, verse 33, they are testifying, they're sharing their testimony of how the risen Christ had absolutely changed their lives for the better. When you're full of the Spirit, you share your testimony, who you were before Christ, how you met Christ, and now who you are after Christ. And it can just flow in conversations. I've been watching a um, uh, docu-series um, called The Bush Years on CNN Sunday night. I think it's a six-part series. And I'm not making any political statements, so do not send me any emails, okay? I'm just watching it. I'm watching TV, okay, just like you do. And so I'm watching this series, and I think it's so interesting. Uh, I was talking about George W. Bush. And George W. Bush, in his 20s and 30s, um, was a lost soul. He was a heavy drinker, and it caused him problems. When he drank, he just drank too much, and he, he made a, f a fool out of himself. And so um, one day, in the summer of 1985, uh, Herbert Walker Bush, his dad, who was buddies with Billy Graham, invited Billy Graham up to Kenny Bunkport, Maine. And Billy Graham came up there to spend time with the Bush family, and he went for a walk with George W. And he said to George W. Bush, Billy Graham said to him, are you right with God? And George W. Bush said, no, but I would like to be. And that led to a spiritual conversation to the point where later, George W. Bush said, God used Billy Graham to change my life. In his own words, because George W. Bush wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, he said, quote, God's work within me began in earnest with Billy Graham's outreach. His care and his teachings were the real beginning of my faith walk and the start of the end of my drinking. I couldn't have given up alcohol on my own. Now, now hear that. Because I know in a crowd this size, or people watching later on or listening later in the week, that there's people who are struggling with alcohol dependency. Listen to that sentence again. I could not have given up alcohol on my own. But in 1986, at the age of 40, I finally found strength to quit. That strength came from love, the love I felt from my earliest days and from the faith I didn't fully discover until my later years. George W. Bush wrote in his book, Decision Point, quote, Billy Graham made it clear, now if you're with me, say amen here. Amen. Gotta get this right here. Because the Christian life is not, I'm gonna try harder. Because if that's your mentality, today's Sunday, by Wednesday, you're gonna be on your face. So listen to this. Quote, Billy Graham made it clear that the path to salvation 
is through the grace of God and the way to that grace is to embrace Christ as the risen Lord. That's the gospel. And God wants us to share our testimony as he opens doors during the week. And you say, Pastor, I've tried and my mouth just won't open. Then, Then do what they did in verse 31. Go to prayer. Be full of the spirit of God. We can't do this in our own strength. And then as you're filled with the spirit of God, God will open doors. It'll be very natural. And you can say to people, I'm just wondering, are are you right with God? And you say, they'll be so offended. No, because then you say very quickly, you know, there was a time when I wasn't right with God. Listen, none of us have it together. We're all sinners in need of a savior. And share your testimony about the risen Christ. Pray for opportunities to do that. And so the wonderful spirit-filled life, at least in this context, produced unity. It produced testimony, but it also produced generosity. Okay, so look at verses 34 through 36. It says, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so those in the church who had means, they saw others in the church who were in need. And what did they do? They stepped up to meet the need. They did this voluntarily. I want you to say the word voluntarily, go ahead. Okay, some people say this is communism. It's not communism. Give me a break. That's forced. This is voluntary. And they sold some of their assets, houses, properties, whatever. They liquidated those assets. They brought the proceeds to the apostles for proper distribution. They were generous. It's the result of being filled with the Spirit. Okay, and so look at what John has to say about this whole thing of generosity. He said, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him? How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Anybody can do that. But in deed and in truth. And so as the pastor of this church, I've told you before, I don't know who gives what. I don't wanna know, but I do get a report every week. And so what I do know is there's a lot of generous people inside of this church. People who don't just love in word or talk, but actually in deed and in truth. People in this church who see a need in the church and they step up and meet the need. People in this church who see uh, people who are in need in the church and they step up and they meet that need. And a lot, of that, a lot of times that happens through our Calvary groups and that's an absolutely beautiful thing. Those who are filled with the Spirit are generous. Those who walk in the flesh... They're stingy. And what they do is they close their hearts against their brothers and sisters and God, not John, the Holy Spirit through John says, how does my love abide in you? And so an example of generosity is now given to us in verses 36 through 37. Look at verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement. Note this, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. You guys know that island out in the Mediterranean Sea? Sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so here's a specific example of generosity given by Barnabas. This is the same Barnabas that we're gonna read a lot about this year as we go verse by verse through Acts. Um, This is the same Barnabas who loved the Apostle Paul when no one else did, (laughs) who took him under his wing and mentored him when everyone else was like, no. And he's the guy who went with Paul on his first missionary journey. It says that Barnabas was a Levite. Now that's very interesting to me because those of you who read through the Bible in a year or those of you who read through the Bible in two years, those of you who actually read like, Numbers in Leviticus, you're gonna know what I'm talking about right now. Those of you who don't are not gonna know. But in the Mosaic law, there is a law from God to the Jewish community that the Levites, the descendants of Levi, the Levites, those were the guys who would minister around and serve around the tabernacle, which later became the temple. Okay, so those Levites, they were not allowed to own land in Israel. Um, the, the allotted territories of the 12 tribes of Israel, they could own land, but the Levites, not, not allowed to own land. God says, I'm your inheritance to the Levites. And they were given 48 cities back in Old Testament times in order to live in, and then they would take shifts going to Jerusalem to, to, to minister in the temple. Well, Barnabas, we come to the first century AD, and he's a Levite, and he owns land. And so what's going on here? The question is, why did Barnabas, who was a Levite, own land? Well, some people say that this law, that the Levites were not allowed to own land, man, that's 1500 BC, when God gave Moses the law coming down from Mount Sinai. We're in the first century AD, and so by now, the Jewish community, they're really not following this specific law anymore. That's what some people say. Other people say, no, that's not true. What's really true is that Barnabas, his land that he owned was over on the island of Cyprus. And the, and the, only, the only law is that the Levites were not allowed to own land within the territory of Israel. He owned land on Cyprus, and so he's okay. Other people say, no, you're wrong. Actually, Barnabas, he was a backslidden Levite. He bought the land, and now as an act of repentance, he's selling the land and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. So who's right? Well, my thought is, who cares, right? What matters right now is that Barnabas, he's showing that he's spirit-filled, and a fruit of that is generosity. He sold his piece of property wherever it was located, and he brought the proceeds to the apostles and laid it at their feet for proper distribution. As you read the book of Acts, you're gonna see that Barnabas is greatly respected by the Christian community. And I got a sneaking suspicion that one of the reasons he's greatly respected is this is a giver, not a taker. This is a generous guy. He loves people. He's the son of encouragement. Now, I also have a hunch that there was a certain couple who saw Barnabas make his donation to the church and they saw all the respect that Barnabas received from the Christian community, and their hearts became jealous, and their hearts became envious. Now, who might that couple be? 
I heard it. The infamous Ananias and Sapphira. All right, no chapter breaks when Luke wrote Acts. And so we're going to plow ahead and go ahead to chapter 5, verse 1. Put your seatbelts on. (laughs) But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have in this beautiful, infant, pristine, first century church, the first ugly blemish of sin. Ananias and Sapphira watched Barnabas give his generous gift and they saw the respect that he received from the Christian community and instead of allowing that act of generosity to motivate them to honest giving, Ananias and Sapphira allowed Satan to fill their heart and twist their heart and cause them to play the hypocrite. And perhaps the conversation between Ananias and Sapphira went something like this. Ananias looks at his wife and says, honey, have you noticed all the respect that Barnabas gets in the church? You know, honey, we own property too. Why don't we sell our property and give the proceeds to the church? And the wife says, well, Annie, how much is that property worth? And I could say thirty dollars or $40,000, but we'll keep it more in biblical terms. Well, honey, it's, it's probably 30 to 40 pieces of silver. You don't want to give that much to the church, do you? No, of course not. But, but here's what I'm thinking. What do you say we sell our land for 40 pieces of silver, but tell Peter and the apostles that we actually sold it for 30 pieces of silver, and then we'll keep 10 pieces for ourselves, and nobody will ever know And they'll all think we're such generous givers. Oh boy, look at verse two. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand the Bible here. Peter is gonna let Ananias know here in a moment that it wasn't wrong that he kept some of the profit of the land for himself. Ladies and gentlemen, this was Ananias and Sapphira's land. They owned it. They could have done whatever they wanted to do with it. They could have given the church 100%, 50%, 10%. That's between them and God. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they did not give all the proceeds to the church. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they lied about how much they sold it for so they could appear to be something they were not. They wanted to be respected like Barnabas. They wanted to receive the same accolades as Barnabas. So they played the hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? In the Greek, it means an actor, a stage player. Everybody tell me the last word, please. A pretender. And so what do actors do? They pretend to be someone they're not. And so Mel Gibson becomes Braveheart. Right? And uh, Russell Crowe becomes the gladiator, and Harrison Ford becomes Han Solo. And Brie Larson, I haven't seen the movie, becomes Captain Marvel. Is it worth going to see? Did anyone see it yet? I hear yes and no. 
Okay, so spend $50 in popcorn and Coke and go see it, or $1 at the Red Box. What, what do you think I should do? Red Box, yes, all right. Maybe we'll have a movie night together. And so Brie Larson is not really Captain Marvel. You guys know that in real life, right? She plays the role of someone she's not. Now that's great in the movies. It's not great in church. It's really bad in church. Webster's defines a hypocrite, quote, a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. That's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. They put on a false appearance of spirituality. They tried to become something or someone they were not so that people would esteem them. Now I have a question for you. Do you think all this is fooling Peter? Look at verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the who? the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now, again, don't misunderstand. Look at verse four. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Ananias, you could have done whatever you wanted to do with that land. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to whom? God. Okay, so... God gave Peter a word of knowledge. And, and by the way, I still believe that the gifts are for today and I still believe God gives words of wisdom and I believe God gives words of knowledge. He gives faith, okay? And, and so Peter receives a word of knowledge and he knows Ananias is lying and so he calls him out. He says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Now I gotta do a quick side note here. You cannot lie to a force. You can only lie to a person. I say that because a lot of the cults, and sadly, a lot of Christians who've never been discipled, they think the Holy Spirit is like this mystical force that moves through the church. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't lie to a force. I can't lie, for example, to an electrical current because that electrical current does not have an intellect, emotions, or will. I can't go out into my garage to my electrical box and start speaking to the electricity behind that box and say, electricity, you're such a blessing to my home. You cause lights to go on in the rooms and you cause heat on the stove and you cause it to be cold in the summer and warm in the, in the winter. I love you so much electricity and therefore I will never cut you off from this house. And then later on the next day, you gotta do some electrical work. And so you go over to the electrical box and on goes off. You do the electrical work, you come back and put it on and the electricity speaks to you. You lied to me. <laughs> you see, that'll never happen, why? because an electrical current does not have an intellect, emotions, or a will. I can't lie to a force, I can lie to a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, and like you and I, he has an intellect, he can think. He has emotions, he can feel. And he has a will, he's volitional, he can choose. And so the Holy Spirit 
is a person, and he's not only a person, he's God. Did you see it? Look at verse three again. Everybody please look at verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the who? The Holy Spirit. Okay, now jump down to the end of verse four. Here we go. You have not lied to man, but to who? God. The Holy Spirit is not some mystical force. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he's God. He's Yahweh God. Ladies and gentlemen, through the progressive revelation of the scripture, here's what we know about God. He is one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we try so hard in our churches, and I'm glad, thank God, that we try in our churches to get our Christology right. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He left his eternal throne and he added a human nature to his already existing eternal divine nature and Jesus became 100% God, 100% man. He is the God man. And I say, praise God, you got that straight from the word of God. But listen, Christology is important, but so is pneumatology, so is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and we cannot refer to the Holy Spirit like some mystical force and some crazy stuff that I'm hearing these days coming out of churches of who the Holy Spirit is. No, stop dishonoring the Holy Spirit. There's one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you move away from Port St. Lucie and go to a church and the pastor is saying something else about God, I have one word of advice. Run. Run. We're talking about biblical, orthodox Christianity and we dare not, dare not get this wrong. And so verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and took a nap. Is that what it says? No, he fell down and he breathed his last. This guy died. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, Here's Peter, he's like, Ananias, you haven't lied to man. You've lied to God. And Ananias is like, I don't feel so well. Boom, he's gone. Right there. Now, some people read this and they're shocked. I can't believe this is in the New Testament. I expect this kind of stuff in the Old Testament. But the New Testament's all about grace. And so why is this in the New Testament? And I have a question for you. Did God change? Is there a different God in the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament? No, it's the same Yahweh God. God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. I am the Lord God, I change not. He never changes. The Lord hates lying as much in the New Testament as he did in the Old Testament. The Lord hates hypocrisy as much in the New Testament as he did in the Old Testament. God has not gotten soft on sin. One of my favorite commentators I like, this guy, Chuck, uh, Chuck Swindoll. The church learned, and by the way, you, you know why I, I, I share guys like this with you guys? Because these are old guys, and they're gonna finish well. Amen. So important. Pray for me, I wanna finish well. The church learned that God's grace doesn't make him soft on sin. 
He's still the holy, righteous God who deals harshly with rebellion. And so it's a mistake when we say God was hard on sin in the Old Testament, but he's soft on sin in the New Testament because of grace, and therefore, I'm gonna party. That's a mistake. Ladies and gentlemen, the emphasis on grace in the New Testament is not there so we can have a license to sin. Paul wrote to the New Testament church of Rome, Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. King James Version, God forbid it. All right, and so what we gotta understand is that God has not become all of a sudden soft on sin. Therefore, if you're aware of a certain sin inside of your life, don't presume upon God's grace and continue to practice your sin. Please hear me. If you presume upon God's grace and you continue willfully to practice your sin, you will experience the judgment of God. He will come and he will discipline. You say, why? Here's why, because hypocrisy hurts. It hurts you, it hurts your loved ones, it hurts your spouse, it hurts your kids, it hurts your grandkids. And God says, no. Just like any good parent, when your child is in willful rebellion, if you hate your child, just say, it's okay, honey. But if you love your child, you will correct your child. God loves you. God loves me, and God will absolutely correct whether we're under the old covenant or under the new covenant. And you say, well, how can I avoid God's discipline? Here's how. If we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. We just gotta judge ourselves, and we'll never have to worry about this kind of correction or any kind of, of, of judgment from God or discipline from God. And so what does that mean? That means that you turn to Christ in repentance. That means you surrender every area of your life to him. That means that you tell him, Lord, I can't overcome this on my own. I need your help. Now, how many of you guys believe he's a good, good father? And when you say that, he's there, he loves you. And he's got the supernatural power to help you. And then call up a friend and say, hey, can you be my accountability partner? I'm struggling in this area and I really need some help. And so can we just have honest conversations and will you hold me accountable in whatever this area is in my life? If we judged ourselves, we could avoid the judgment of God. God is not soft on sin in the New Testament. Just ask his son, Jesus, who hung half naked, on a cross and endured the wrath of God so you and I would never have to endure the wrath of God. I'm not talking about the wrath of God here. What I'm talking about is the discipline of a loving father to his children. And so Ananias, he's judged by God as an example to the rest of the Christian community that God's not soft on sin. They bury him and later on, his wife comes to church. And she doesn't realize that sometimes going to church can be hazardous to your health. <laughs> Look at verse seven. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. 
And she said, yeah, for so much. But Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet, and she breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear, I guess so, came upon the whole church. And that's a good thing, by the way. Listen, this is when churches and people start wising up because Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Why did God's judgment fall on this couple? Here's why. They played the hypocrite. Shakespeare, over 400 years ago, said this. And specifically, this is Hamlet to Ophelia. God has given you one face and you make yourself another. In other words, why are you trying to be someone you're not? Why are you trying to be something you're not? And, and sometimes I think, man, wouldn't it be great to be part of a church where everybody's real? Wouldn't it be great to be part of a church where everybody's genuine? Wouldn't it be great to be part of a church where everybody is just open? Now, here's what I want to challenge you about. You may be here today and you might say, Pastor Mike, you know, honestly, I'm not like these Barnabas Christians. I don't have my life all together. I'm not all squared away. I'm not spirit-filled yet. Okay, be honest. God already knows that. Don't come in here and try to be somebody else. Be who you are. And guess what? God will love you every step at each step in your spiritual growth. So he already knows it. Just be who you are. Be honest about it. Say, I'm not there yet, but with God's help, one day I will be. And God forbid there's anybody in this church who's doing this. But hey, we're all sinners saved by grace. Let's be honest with one another. Here's your last point. Probably the most important. Why be a hypocrite when your heavenly father loves you so much? Why try to be someone else when God loves you? And the reason I'm slowing down right now is because I, I, want, I want this right here to sink in because this is, a, a lot of people have daddy hurts and mama hurts and you weren't loved. And you can't fathom this whole thing of God loves me. You need to know Here's the thing, it'll never change. God loves you. So don't try to be someone else. Don't try to be something else. Be who God made you to be. He loves your face. He loves your smile. He loves your laugh. He loves your personality. He loves those of you out there who are really outgoing. And he loves people like me who in real life are really reserved. He loves those of you out there who have the sense of humor, even though it's Pretty dry sometimes, I have to say. He loves those of you who have senses of humor. He loves those of us who are more serious. God loves you. 
He says that he chose you in Christ before he created the world. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. It says that he knits you together in your mother's womb. Psalm 139, verse 13. And it says that he even counts the numbers of your hair. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30. God loves you. He's madly in love with you. Whether your daddy loved you or not, whether your mother loved you or not, God loves you, and God will never let you down. He's faithful. He's there for you. And he wants you to be a lifelong follower of his son. Just be honest as you're in that process. And you say, what do I do? Here's what you do. He's not soft on sin. So you turn from your sin knowing I can't defeat this on my own, but you can, Jesus. And you look to the cross and you realize that why did Jesus die if I have to work my way to heaven? Eh, false doctrine. There's nothing you can do to work your way to heaven. No, nothing, no, you can't be that good person. He was good for you. He died for you. He accepted the wrath of God in your place. And you trust him alone and you accept his payment on the cross as a payment for your sin. You turn to Christ. And, and now if you're with me, say amen here. Listen, listen then you walk in a relationship with him. You talk to him like he's your best friend, because he is. You stay in his word. You keep short accounts with God. You lean on the everlasting arms. And you'll see, slowly but surely, he'll grow you. The spirit will fill you. And the evidence will be evident to everybody. <laughs> 